began our series, our, our one talk on inerrancy, why the Bible is without error, I happen to mention in passing that the, uh, that the debate has moved away from the Bible itself to before you even get to the Bible. And so the question in a lot of modern scholarship's minds is about uh, uh, which books should be included in the first place. And they point to, they point to disputes in the early church about uh, which books should have been included and which books are not included. To, uh, to make some really fantastic claims. I say fantastic in, as in their fantasies, as they, uh, as they wished the world were. Uh, but as we find, as we look deeper into issues like this, what we find is that they're misusing the evidence that they're looking at. So um, I've titled the series, Which Bible, Which Jesus? And so tonight we're going to introduce the series Uh, with the theological underpinnings of the canon of Scripture. I'll tell you what the canon is in a moment. But a couple of texts uh, really come to mind when we think about this uh, subject or begin to start talking about this subject. And that is John 1.1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another text from the Apostle Paul, Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. Now, uh, uh, what, uh, what those texts are saying is that God acts in history. And in a moment, I'm going to bring that idea back up. But the fact that God acts in history, if Jesus Christ walked this earth and cast a shadow, then he is, uh, he is subject to historical inquiry. Now, um, sadly, the way most uh, modern-day historians treat historical fact, I'm putting that in air quotes, um, well, fact is a slippery thing these days, those days. Uh, the way most modern historians treat a historical fact, you'd think that, uh, that Jesus never said anything other than pithy one-liners. And, uh, oh yeah, would you believe it? They, they've, uh, they've actually voted on what uh, Jesus said or didn't. And, uh, and if it's, uh, if he really said it, they put it in red. If he if he said something like it, they put it in pink, and so on. And, and the Gospel of John, according to this group of people, gets one pink letter saying. So I'll, I'll bring those folks up at the tail end of our series about the historical Jesus. But if Jesus walked this earth as a human being and cast a shadow on this earth, then it's then it behooves us as Christians to look into this because God does act in history. So why do I care about this subject? Why do I care about the canon of Scripture? Why do I care about the historical Jesus? And, and I want you to put yourself in, in my shoes. Why do I care? If you're asking this question, why do I care? Uh, maybe a couple of, uh, of statements you see a lot around or hear said uh, will we'll kind of set the stage for this. The first is, it's in the Bible. What's in the Bible? You know, like a lot of people's favorite verse is God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> you know, you guys laugh because you know that's not in the Bible, but, but lots of people think that's in the Bible somewhere. It's in the Bible somewhere. Yeah. Check it out on Snopes.com. Perhaps it's there. Um, no, that's not it. But it's in the Bible. Which Bible are you talking about? Are you talking about the Bible that you and I read, or are you talking about the Bible that other people read? And which books really belong in there? 
could go over to a Catholic friend's house, for instance, and open up the Bible that's sitting on their coffee table, you'll see a bunch of books in there that you've never seen before with names that are uh, very odd to you and me. Uh, but uh, people have said those are part of the Bible as well. How do we know those don't belong in there? Well, the Schofields tells me so. No, well, the Schofields, you know, the Schofield uh, Study Bible. That's, you know, it's good for you and me. In an in-house discussion, we can, we can laugh about those kinds of things. But, you know, your friends, the people who live next door to you, people who live across the street and so on, a lot of those people are biblically illiterate. They don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know how it came about. And they have those questions, and they don't have the answers that you have. So I want, I want to equip you with answers to help guide them through that discussion as to why those books don't belong there. The other statement is a little bit more cynical, and that is, the winners write the history. Have you heard that before? People throw that thing around all the time, and what they really, what they really mean by it is that anything that you read, you should take with a great deal of skepticism uh, because it's the winners who write the history. That is, whoever wrote the Bible, this is, this is kind of how the claim goes, whoever wrote the Bible are the people who won the conflict. And so the, the, the modern um, myth, or the modern fable about how the Bible came about was that there were a bunch of really nice people living side by side, each holding different viewpoints about who God is and, and who Jesus is, and that there was a group of people in the 4th century, those nasty fundamentalist type of people, who... Uh, who rounded up all the people that they didn't like in their churches and kicked them out and kicked their scriptures out as well. And so it's only in the 4th century that you find them actually having a, a full list of what should be in the Bible. So there were lots of books who, from the standpoint of those books, could say, help, help, I'm being repressed. Anyone ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Okay, well, see, now, okay, now, I, I've got to stop and explain that quote to you then. There's this wonderfully anachronistic scene. Uh, it's supposed to be set in King Arthur's time, of course. And, and uh, King Arthur is trying to explain to one of the peasants how he became king. And, and this guy, of course, is spouting all kinds of communist uh, jargon. You know, he says, uh, uh, Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords. There's no basis for a, a, a basis uh, for uh, absolute power. You know, power derives from the from the masses. You see, uh, says this 11th century guy. And so finally, King Arthur starts shaking him and says, "Shut up, shut up." You know, I've got my quest to go on. And, and the poor guy says, "Help, help! I'm being repressed." And so um, there's the violence inherent in the system. He says. Okay, so now that you all know, the required, required viewing for next week is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> it, just, it just goes hand in hand with being a biblical scholar. You have to enjoy these kinds of things. Okay, so, so it's wonderfully anachronistic uh, view of, of how the early church went about its business is that there were these nice people who held divergent views of who Jesus was, and they were stamped out. They were repressed into nothingness as it were, and uh, it, it took people digging up their books 
from ancient trash heaps to find that there were other people who claimed Jesus said a bunch of other stuff. And so we'll kind of get into that toward the end of our uh, end of our fifth week. So if you're not interested in anything else, if you want to just come back in five weeks, we'll talk about <laughs> we'll talk about that. But um, anyway, so so the current mythology uh, uh, running around today is that the reason that we have the books that we do in our Bible is that uh, there was that there was a political uh, and forceful purging of the Bible of the books that the powers that be thought should not be there. And I'm going to show you how how that is the farthest from the truth. But that is what you will hear uh, if you go to any college class, any Bible as history, any Bible as literature course, when your children go off to college and they take, you know, they say, hey, here's a course on the Bible. Hey, I can take that because I know the Bible. And they get a completely different uh, take from their professor uh, than you ever heard and that they ever heard in your, in your household. So here's what our five uh, uh, sessions will look like. Tonight we're going to talk about why a canon. I'll explain what canon means in just a minute. But then uh, next week we're going to talk about the Old Testament canon, why the books of the Old Testament are what they are. And then we're going we're to talk about the New Testament canon in which I'm going to really talk more about what I've, been, what I've just been hinting at about the 4th century and where we got the specific lists of books that belong there. And then I'd like to spend our fourth week together talking about specific New Testament books. Why did some people think Second Peter shouldn't be included? Why did some people think that uh, Hebrews shouldn't be included? Why are there four Gospels? And so on. We'll talk about those. We'll talk about specific criteria the early church used to identify uh, what was there. And all of that tells you, by the way, especially lectures three and four, are going to talk about how the early Christians weren't just idiots who blindly and uncritically accepted anything that was thrown at them as though it came from Jesus. They had specific criteria for dealing with whether it was authorized or not. There was a reason for that. And then I'd like to spend our fifth week together talking about the historical Jesus. And uh, you will find uh, that the story of the, the canon of Scripture and the story of the historical Jesus kind of go hand in hand in that uh, this picture that we find in the Gospels of the historical Jesus is at best, according to the same set of scholars who are worried about what books belong in the in the uh, in the Bible, the Jesus, the picture of Jesus that we find in the Gospels is a fantasy of who Jesus is, and the real Jesus said only very small bits of what the church said he said, and he certainly didn't expect uh, to to uh, to lead uh, the end times. He certainly didn't expect that people would have thought he was God. This is what uh, scholars are saying about him. And that all of this business about him being God and about being uh, uh, God's man for the end times and so on was all put on his lips by people who wrote hundreds of years after Jesus was on earth. I'll show you how that's a patent falsehood as well. But uh, now, you may be just content by saying, well, those guys are just a bunch of unbelievers. But... 
anything you pick up, modern media, anything you see on TV, the History Channel, public broadcasting, uh, and anything you're going to pick up in your textbooks for high school, for college, for any of those kinds of things is going to intersect with a lot of what I'm telling you. Now, what I'm trying to do is arm you with answers that, that don't sound like they're just a knee-jerk reaction. Well, that's not what I heard in Sunday school. See, we need, more, we need better answers than that. That's a, that's a good answer to start with, you know. But it's, it's not, um, shall we say, completely satisfactory to a lot of people. So let's move into a, a definition of what is a canon. Now, a cannon is an artillery piece, but no. Um, <laughs> depends on how you spell cannon. If you spell cannon with two N's, it's an artillery piece. If you spell it with one N, C-A-N-O-N, cannon, we're talking about, specifically when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about the list of books and, and naturally those, the content of those books that we ought to be reading. Uh, that the, the books that we believe are, should be used as scripture and treated as uh, sacred, treated as scripture, God's divine revelation, if you will. So what is canon? Well, let's start with the word canon. Uh, the way we use the word canon actually comes by way of Greek, the word kanon, uh, but actually, in Greek, uh, the, the Greeks used a Hebrew word, kane. Can you read that? Yeah, good. All right. You don't need any vowel points, huh? Okay, very good. If you'd like to, you can buy some vowels later and stick them on there. Let's see. Okay, see. Q-N-H, kane, or in Greek, kanon, K-A-N, long O-N, kanon. Uh, the Greeks borrowed this word, kane, uh, into Greek. And at its very base, the word means stick or reed. Uh, it comes to mean something like a measuring stick and by extension, a rule. That is, something by which you measure something else, whether uh, by, by, uh, by seeing how long it is or seeing whether it's straight or not. So there's a number of different ways in which you could use a stick, and all of those things could be used to, to talk about a rule, a standard against which something is measured. Now, these two words, the Hebrew word kane and the Greek word kanon, both occur in the scriptures themselves, although not in the sense in which we're using it of a canon of scripture. But uh, just so you know, Exodus 25:31, for instance, the lampstand in its base and its shaft, that's the word kane there, talking about this lampstand, the menorah, you know, with its, with its stick coming up. This is what uh, uh, the word is used in the Hebrew scriptures. And the Greek word kanon in Galatians 6.16 comes close to the way we're going to use it to talk about the canon of scripture. Those who will walk by this rule. Paul says, this kanon. Well, uh, <clears throat> those two examples of the word canon really don't illuminate the way we're using it. Um, the first person that we know of, uh, that is, that we have documentary evidence for, is a, is a church writer by the name of, of Athanasius. Uh, uh, sorry, Ath Athanasius. 
and uh, he uh, wrote letters uh, to the churches. He was a bishop. He wrote letters to the churches that were under him. And there's a famous, the, the, one of the most famous letters he wrote was a festal letter celebrating Easter for the year A.D. 367. And in and 39.3 of that letter, he writes, It seemed to me a good to me to set before you the books included in the canon. And then later on in the same letter, 39.7, he says, There are other books besides these, indeed, uh, not indeed included in the canon, but appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us and those who wish for instruction in the ways of godliness. So uh, it's in the 4th century, the latter half of the 4th century, kind of around the middle of that century, that we find actually the word canon being used of this list of scriptures. And actually, uh, Athanasius uh, lists all of the books that we consider to be canonical in his list. Uh, it doesn't come out to be 66 books because... Uh, <clears throat> Because of the way you count books of the Old Testament, you, you end up putting um, uh, uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations together, First and Second Samuel go together, and so on. So the, the, he comes out with the same 66 books that we do, but by a different by a different route. For the New Testament, he comes out with 27 books and lists them in the order in which you're familiar with them. So uh, between the writing of the books of Scripture and this list that became an official list, if you will, of the church in the 4th century, there's a lot of time. And a lot of uh, scholars will point to a list like this and say, see, we don't have a list like this until the 4th century. That means that the canon was still open until the 4th century when nasty people like Athanasius came along and with their intolerance said, let's not have any more than 66 books. Well, not so fast there, partner. Uh, let's try not to be so cynical about the canon that uh, we, we think that uh, this was all part of a conspiracy. Uh, a more modern scholar uh, by the name of Bruce Metzger, you've probably heard his name if you've heard, if you've heard me or Dr. Wallace talk uh, about New Testament textual criticism, uh, the, the name Bruce Metzger uh, comes to mind. Uh, Metzger was a professor of New Testament studies at uh, Princeton University for a number of years, trained a number of really uh, 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 well-known scholars, uh, some of whom are uh, wonderful evangelical believers and others who are, well, who used to be evangelical believers. Let's just put it that way. Wait, Metzger's uh, book uh, on the canon of the New Testament, uh, defines the, the term canon in two ways. He says there's an active sense in which this word canon is used. He says, quote, those books that serve to mark out the norm for Christian faith and life. And there's a passive sense in which the word canon is used. And that is the list of books that have been marked out by the church as normative. Maybe that's a little bit too cumbersome uh, a definition for you. Let's try, let's try this. There's two statements you could make about the canon of Scripture. You could say, first of all, that it's a collection of authoritative books. Or you could say that it's an authoritative collection of books. Either one of those statements is true. Uh, the, 
the canon of Scripture is the collection of books that we say are authoritative, that, that is, that God has put his stamp of approval on. So it's a collection of authoritative books. But there's also this sense in which when we say that there is a canon of Scripture, we've said that it's this group of books and no others. So it's an authoritative collection. That is, there have been ones that people have thought maybe should be included that aren't, and that's an authoritative collection of books. So it's both at the same time, both a collection of authoritative books and an authoritative collection of books. Uh, let me take my own stab at defining this based on, the, on that terminology. Maybe we could put it this way. Maybe we could say that the canon of Scripture is th- an exclusive collection of authoritative books. An exclusive collection of authoritative books. Now, what I want to spend the rest of our time tonight talking about is why a canon of Scripture is not the product of a political fight in the 4th century, but is a natural outgrowth of the way God has revealed himself to his people and through his people by the Spirit. So maybe we could say this. The canon is a natural outworking of divine revelation that safeguards and authenticates its integrity and trustworthiness. Yeah, that's a mouthful, but I, I, it was a way for me to summarize the, the whole rest of the talk here. So it's the canon, the canon of Scripture is a natural outworking of divine revelation that safeguards and authenticates its integrity and trustworthiness. That is, how do I know which books I should read that will tell me the truth about who God is? Of course, you know why you have to know the truth about who God is, because Otherwise, you wouldn't relate to him properly. I mean, you read, uh, uh, for instance, Philippians, uh, uh, what, uh, sorry, what uh, Paul says to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31. The, the, the Philippian jailer says to Paul, what, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's, uh, Paul's reply, rather pithy reply is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's recorded, of course, in one of the books that's in the canon of Scripture, the book of Acts, Acts 16.31. Now, suppose there was another book that hadn't been included that should have been included that said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and give all your money to the church and be baptized and try to be good. And You see, the point is, is really, this is serious business, isn't it? Because uh, if we don't have all the books that should be there, or if we don't have all, all the books, all the pieces of all the books that should be there, then we're in a world of hurt, aren't we? <clears throat> now, uh, you know, it's really interesting in this day and age, especially when people are so cynical. Uh, I'm fond of saying that cynicism really isn't all that it's cracked up to be. But in this day of cynicism, all you need to do is just cast a little bit of doubt on something. And and just a little bit of doubt becomes proof that it's not true. Okay? So, I I don't know. There's some legal experts in here who could probably speak to this more than I could. But my impression in seeing some of these kind of showcase trials uh, where the jury gets all, uh, all discombobulated about this evidence or that evidence, and they're worried about reasonable doubt, 
and you think, gosh, you know, just because there's a little bit of question by the defense or the prosecution about somebody's story doesn't mean necessarily that it's not true. Am I, am I right? I've got a judge and a lawyer here on the front row. Can, maybe you can speak to that later. But uh, <clears throat> at any rate, wh- what, uh, what people will try to do in the modern media is they'll just cast a little bit of doubt on this, and then people will let that doubt take hold, and they'll just run with that doubt rather than, rather than trying to say, well, now, why did this person raise this question? Were they being honest with all the evidence that's there? Was there some evidence that was withheld? Let's talk about discovery, huh? Uh, <clears throat> was, was the person who's raising the doubt clear about why that's, why that's a problem? There's lots of questions that you need to ask when somebody raises doubts about the Scripture. And I think what you will find is when you really take a look at some of the just weird claims that people make about the Bible, you will find that they have been less than honest with the evidence that they're presenting. Okay, so here's the idea. Here is why a canon of Scripture is a natural outworking of the way God has worked in and through His people. My first statement, of course, is something that's probably obvious to you is that God reveals Himself. Now, this is of more importance than you realize because if God reveals Himself, then He must have a way of doing it. And we've got to know what way in which he has revealed himself so that we can, we can test and see uh, <clears throat> whether it's really God speaking or somebody else. So we could start with the idea of general revelation. We could point to Romans 1.18, for instance. Since the creation of the world, God's attributes have been clearly seen through what has been made. I've skipped some little pieces of this just to to make it work a little faster in reading. But Paul is saying people who reject God and who He is are without excuse because you can look at the universe and see that it has a creator. Uh, Paul is reflecting something that's older than, 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 uh, than what he's saying in Romans 1.18. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. All you need to do is look up at the stars at night if you can see them through all the light pollution. And you can see that God exists. Now, of course, general revelation doesn't allow you to have a relationship with God. It just tells you that God exists. Or perhaps, uh, to be <clears throat> a little bit more precise, it just tells you that the universe has a creator. It doesn't tell you who God really is. But then Psalm 19 goes on later in, the, later in the psalm, and let me just point out some key terms in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. All of these are terms that the psalmist is using of God's word, of how God reveals himself in a particular way to his people. And he, he goes on to say about these pieces of his word, by them your servant is warned. That is, a person can have a relationship with God because God has revealed himself specifically, not just generally in the creation, but specifically through his word 
<clears throat> so that people would uh, would know who he is. Psalm one, 119, not Psalm 19, but Psalm 119, uh, verse 105, you've probably memorized. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. So God reveals how his people can have a relationship with him. That's special revelation. Now, of course, we could recognize as we read through the Bible that God has revealed himself in a number of different ways to different people. Some people he's, uh, he's revealed himself through dreams or through direct revelation of himself. I mean, you think about people like Abraham uh, uh, or uh, Jacob, for instance, who saw this, uh, this ladder reaching up to heaven and the angels ascending and descending on it. Uh, and so a number of different ways in which God decided to reveal himself. Joseph interpreting the dreams of different people. But uh, all of that we know by reading the written word of God. And so the point that follows naturally along this line is that God records the testimony of people who have direct encounters with God. And God uses authorized messengers to do it. And once he records it in Scripture, it becomes authoritative. It's, it's just as though God himself had said it to you. Now, it may not always apply in quite the same way. And there are other, other things that we need to bring into our decision-making about what we do with certain passages of Scripture, like, you know, now you can eat shrimp because we're not under the kosher laws. You know, I mean, if, if it was seafood in the Old Testament, it had to have fins and scales. So that, that, that throws shrimp right out and so on. There's certain ways in which you're supposed to prepare your food uh, uh, that, uh, that God had for his people in the Old Testament times. Uh, but now that has, uh, there are portions of the Old Testament that have been superseded by later revelation, those kinds of things. But... Uh, the general point I'm getting at is that once it gets into Scripture, once it becomes Scripture, once it becomes part of the canon of Scripture, it's as though God is speaking directly to you, to us as a community. And that leads me to Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. Let me just kind of as I lead into the idea of a canon as well, is what Peter says to, uh, to the people he's writing to in verses 16 to 21, and we've studied this on Sunday nights uh, before. Bruce has, been te- has taught his way through Second uh, Peter. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, uh, what he's talking about, by the way, just the context of, uh, of why he's raising these issues, is that some people are... are are, uh, are saying, hey, you know, you guys, Peter and you, you guys, you friends, you're saying that any minute Jesus could come back, and it's been, you know, a couple of decades maybe since, uh, since uh, Jesus said that, and uh, he hadn't come back, so where is he? People are still saying that, right? That Jesus comes come back any minute now? Yeah, sure, yeah, where is he? Uh, you know, but Peter says later, uh, you know, in the letter, God's not slow the way some people count slowness. So don't get too cocky, Peter. Uh, So we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from the Father, 
Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, Peter is hearkening back to that episode in his, his own life as an eyewitness to the, the, the episode on the Mount of Transfiguration where uh, Jesus was speaking with God there and, uh, <clears throat> and God said to Peter and his friends who were with him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Which, by the way, is exactly what the utterance says at the baptism of Jesus as well. So we have a double attestation of who Jesus is in each of the Gospels. He goes on. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Tell you when this happened. So now we have the prophetic word made more sure. Or perhaps a better way to render this. So we consider the prophetic word to be entirely trustworthy. There's not uh, more sure to this idea here. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Thy word is a lamp to my feet. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So what, what Peter is saying is there's a couple of different sources I'm drawing on when I'm telling you Jesus is coming back and you'd better be ready. The first is the fact that I'm an eyewitness. I'm speaking of Peter. That I'm an eyewitness to what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. I heard what the voice from heaven said. But there's another source that you all have access to, and that's the prophetic word. That's the scriptures. You can read it for yourself. That God has promised that what I'm telling you about Jesus Christ is true. And in, in case you're wondering about the source of his testimony, he says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. People didn't just conjure this up and say, oh, this is God speaking. <clears throat> but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He's talking about the prophetic word. There's no prophecy was ever made. So he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. He's talking about the inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures. So he says there's the prophetic word. That's the Bible of his time. And then the special word from God about Jesus are his sources of testimony. Now, you remember what we, what we said about inerrancy. We said that inerrancy actually, that is the idea, uh, the truth, that what the Bible says is true, is true. And that what we have in the Bible is completely without error. Rises out of the fact that it comes from God. He says, men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. So the very words they chose were the very words that the Spirit chose. And thus bear the stamp of divine authority. That is, God spoke through his authorized messengers. And so the reason we're saying that the Bible is inerrant is that it is inspired. And God cannot lie. Now, let's come back to this idea that God acts in history. Because he has acted in ways that are very often the same or follow patterns. That is, the way in which God dealt with his people in the Old Testament is very much the way God dealt with his people in the New Testament. It would make sense, wouldn't it? Because it's the same God. 
the same God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and who dwelt as the glory over the ark in the most holy place in the temple is the very God who became flesh and whose glory we beheld. God acts in human history, and when he acts in human history, like in the Exodus or like in the life of Abraham, he makes a covenant with people that he deals with. So this brings me to this concept, the concept of covenant. Okay, you tracking with me so far? God reveals himself, and when he does, he, he makes a deal with people. He says, this is how I'm going to act. This is how you guys are supposed to act. And here are the documents. This is why canon is such an important concept because it comes out of the idea of covenant. Now, you've heard Paul and other authors in the New Testament talk about an old covenant. And you've even heard uh, authors in the old covenant talk about a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31, for instance. Ever wonder why it's called the Old Testament and the New Testament? Testament is just another word for covenant. Before Christ, the Old Testament, yeah. And, and after Christ has come, the New Testament, yeah. But we're just talking about the New Covenant. Jesus, on the night he uh, in, instituted the Lord's Supper, said, This blood is the New Covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, is what he says. And so we're coming from covenant to testament, and this is what uh, the canon of Scripture reveals. A covenant establishes relationship with people. That is, God establishes a relationship with people. A covenant establishes the responsibilities of the parties and the consequences of failure. Exodus 34, 28. So Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Literally ten words. And so this is pointing back to what he talked about in Exodus uh, chapter 20. Now, uh, let me just show you that... uh, the components of a covenant are um, actually the way the Old Testament establishes the components of a covenant is very similar to the way people drew up contracts in the ancient Near East. Now, I'm not saying this means that the Bible is not unique or not special or not in any way uh, inspired. I'm just saying that the way God decided to... uh, to make his covenant with Israel was very similar to the way people did things in those days. And I think it's by way of accommodation to the Israelites, they would have understood what God was doing because this is the way you draw up a contract in those days. And so this is the way a king would draw up a contract between the king and his people. And, of course, as you know, Yahweh, Jehovah, if you will, you say it Yahweh, I say it my way. Um, Jesus Christ, as he was then revealed, the God of Israel, uh, made a covenant with his people. And so uh, often a, com- a covenant would have a historical prologue 
and then a list of stipulations, and then a list of blessings and cursings, and then something about copying the documents to say, you know, we the, so in our terminology, you know, we the undersigned acknowledge the receipt of these documents, and we'll do everything that it says, otherwise you can be sued for breach of contract. Except that God, breach of contract means curse. Okay, so here's the historical prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Exodus 20, verse 2. This is the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Interestingly enough, often this, this kind of designation for who God is occurs very frequently in the Old Testament. God keeps reminding Israel, hey, look, guys, I'm the guy, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. So listen to me. Okay, you know, don't go back down to Egypt. All right, so then the list of stipulations are the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal, you shall not murder, so on. Then there are blessings and cursings. Uh, Just a few examples of blessings and cursings. You shall not worship them, that is, other gods. uh, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is also uh, this bit from the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 occurs very frequently as well. Yahweh keeps reminding them. I'm I'm the one who will show you chesed. I'll show you loving kindness all the time. Just listen to me. Come on, do it my way. You shall not take, Exodus 27, 20, verse 7, you shall not take the Lord, name of your Lord, the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This is the list of blessings and cursings. How about this? Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Blessing in obedience. There's also a very famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, uh, which is full of blessings and cursings. I'll, I'll quote you a couple of verses out of Deuteronomy 28. Uh, Deuteronomy 20, 28, verses 1 and 2 say, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come on you and will overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Isn't that interesting? Will overtake you. These blessings are running you down. They're just waiting, you know. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, I, I sure wish that, uh, that English translations would say pursue instead of follow. That's a much better translation. Uh, Thursday night is Hebrew class. You're, you're welcome to, well, actually, you'll have to wait till next fall to start that one. I'd be glad to teach you Hebrew as well. Uh, Deuteronomy 28:15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes, which I, which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. I mean, there's a list of. So I, I've skipped the list of blessings, and I'm skipping the list of cursings. But I'm showing you right here is that there's a list of blessings and cursings. Here is what will happen if you breach this contract. Okay, now, let me just say, just by way of a a, a sidebar of explanation here, we're not talking about how to get saved here. 
We're not talking about how to stay saved here. We're talking about people who are already saved have certain obligations God puts on them, and here's how they're supposed to act. Now, you and I as church-age believers don't have the same set of obligations, but we do have obligations, okay, which are very similar to theirs, but at least we can eat shrimp. Okay, so... Uh, no, I say that tongue-in-cheek. There's a lot more of the differences between between us and them. But there was a historical prologue. I'm Yahweh. I brought you out of Egypt. The list of stipulations. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's your side of the bargain. Here's my side of the bargain. The blessings and curses. And then there's then there's this component that there are copies of the document, very carefully kept and maintained. Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Now, if you turn all the way to the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, you find something very similar. John says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So there's an inscriptional curse. And what this is doing is it's, it's safeguarding the integrity of the document. It's saying, okay, once we've made a copy of, this, of these documents, you can't just change the, the contract here, <laughs> you know, God, you, you can't just, you know, well, we, we just don't like this bit about not stealing. They're not, you know, we can just strike that out. God's going to come back and say, well, that's not what my copy says. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so this, is what, this is why the scripture is so uh, uh, hard-nosed on this topic that is, you don't change the written record of what uh, what God is doing. Uh, so there's very careful uh, safeguarding of the copies of the documents related to the covenant. And then there's the storage of these documents. When he had finished speaking, Exodus 31, 18 says, when, when he, Yahweh, had finished speaking with him, Moses, upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Now, those particular tablets had to be replaced when Moses came down from the mountain and saw his people, let's say, not keeping the covenant, and he smashed the tablets, and he had to write a copy of it himself the second time. But nevertheless, Deuteronomy uh, uh, well, so let's go to uh, Deuteronomy 10.2 first. I will write on the tablets the words which were on the former tablets which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark, that is, the ark of the covenant. Okay, you know the one that's in the warehouse in Washington? Yeah, um, not quite, but still. Uh, uh, the ark of the covenant that the Israelites carried around with them in the wilderness and then later put in the, in the tabernacle, when it was at Shiloh and other places, and then later in the temple, uh, where it is now is, is anyone's guess. God knows. Uh, but it's probably not in the warehouse in Washington. But uh, here's what's so interesting about this, too, is that these copies are supposed to be maintained by the king of Israel. 
Now, there wasn't a king in Israel when this was written, but uh, God was God knew that they that the that the Israelites would ask for a king eventually. So he he uh, in Deuteronomy 17 said some things about what kings should and shouldn't do. And he said, "Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that is the king, the the, the person who God installs as king of Israel, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests." So it's important to have a copy of the covenant. So God reveals himself to his people and records that revelation in the document of the covenant. And the canon then is the protection for the integrity of the collection of documents. Now, what I've established tonight is that there is this idea that God reveals himself, and he does it in history. He makes specific revelation of himself to people who have a relationship with him. And that especially is done through covenant. And what we've seen tonight is that there are documents related to that covenant, a collection, if you will, that should be kept and maintained, the integrity of it ensured by not adding or taking away, and that this should be uh, uh, the, the work of not only the priests, but also the work of the king, that is the government, not just the church, if you will, but also the government of Israel. And that these documents being safeguarded as the testimony to the covenant is the basis for which we have a canon of scripture. That is, the natural outgrowth, the natural outworking of this concept that God reveals himself and that there is a covenant and there are documents to that covenant means that the early church is just following this trajectory. Once Jesus comes on the scene and does a new exodus, if you will, right? Moses leads the, the nation out of, uh, out of Israel uh, with signs and wonders and miracles. Okay? And, and uh, Moses is one of the very few people who does this kind of thing in, in ancient Israel. You've got maybe Elijah and Elijah working miracles. Not many prophets are working miracles in those days. And Jesus comes on the scene and starts working miracles, and people are going, hey, it must be Elijah. Well, you only got that partly right. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and does something better than Moses, does something greater than Jonah, does something more wise than Solomon, the early church feels the need to write down what Jesus said and did. And those become the documents that are enshrined, if you will, in this collection. And so I'm going to show you next, next week about the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament canon, and where it came from, and then in the weeks following, we'll talk about the New Testament uh, canon. Father, we're so grateful for uh, the fact that you have revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ, the living word, and that you have recorded that revelation for us in a written word. And we ask, Father, that you will uh, grant us your mercy and grace in understanding how we can trust that what we have in our Bible is exactly what you want us to have. And in the weeks to come, Father, we pray that you will show that to us 
by our diligent study. And we ask this in Jesus' name.